Good morning. Turn with me your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Be found in the Bibles, um, either the back table or that we've given you on page 833. <clears throat> we'll be in verses 1 through 31 today. <clears throat> When we were last together, Jesus had just been found guilty of blasphemy by the high priest and by the rulers of Israel. Caiaphas had put Jesus under oath and demanded him to tell him if he was the Messiah or not. Jesus said, you use those words. If you have to use those words, yes, I am the Messiah. But I, but he's not. He went on to explain he's not a political Messiah. He's. But he is one who's inheriting a kingdom. And the next time that these earthly rulers would see him would be when they come before him as their sovereign, all-powerful judge, as told by the prophets. And as we thought about last week, this was more than the chief priest could ever hope for to get this confession out of Jesus. And so Jesus was charged with blasphemy right there on the spot. And the immediate judgment of the Sanhedrin was that he deserved death. So we pick up our passage today in verse in chapter twenty-seven, when the disciples, when when the Sanhedrin or the rulers of Israel take Jesus before Pilate. So let's begin reading in Matthew twenty-seven, verse one. This is God's word. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. <clears throat> they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it's blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price on, of him on whom the, a price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast of the governor, now, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, 
Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For, they, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, "Which of the two of you do you want me to release? Uh, which of the two do you want me to release for you?" And they said, "Barabbas." Pilate said to them, "Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ?" And they all said, "Let him be crucified." And he said, "Why? What evil has he done?" But they shouted all the more, "Let him be crucified!" So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and gathered the whole, they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. So the first thing we want to see here is that Jesus, Jesus was judged guilty and, con, and sentenced to death. So the chief priests and the elders are meeting again, trying to determine how to proceed. This is not a second trial that, that the chief priests are, are, are doing right here in verses 1 and 2. This part is interesting because if someone is guilty of blasphemy, then the chief priest should be the ones that should carry out the sentence. They should stone him the way that we see Stephen stoned in Acts chapter 7. But the rulers of Israel wanted an official action by the state for a number of reasons. One, if we're looking at this from John's timeline, this is the Passover, so they don't want to engage in this punishment today because that's going to make them unclean for the feast. Secondly, we need to remember that they did not want this to happen during the feast because Jesus was popular among the crowds and so they didn't want to stir up trouble and maybe get themselves into trouble. Therefore, they wanted an official government action to give them some distance between the execution of Jesus and themselves. But they had the added benefit of knowing Deuteronomy uh, the means of De Roman execution was crucifixion. And they knew that Deuteronomy 21-23 said, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, who is hung on a tree. So it would show to everyone who may be sitting here on the fence trying to figure out if Jesus was God or was he an imposter, this would put an end to all of it because curse is the one who is hanged on the who was hung on the tree. And this would put an end to his popularity once and for all. But to get Rome to act in an official capacity would require some work. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, 
was not inclined to get involved in some intra-religious squabble between two factions of a religion that he didn't believe in or was a part of. So the rulers needed to figure out how to frame this in such a way as to compel Pilate to act. So they bind him. Bind him like a like a like a rebel, like a uh, uh, there's new like a revolutionary. There's no need to bind Jesus. He's not going anywhere. But they bind him like a revolutionary as if he is a threat to the state. And then they claim he's a threat to the state by saying this man says that he is the king of the Jews. And we know from other parallel texts that the Sanhedrin says we don't have any king other than Caesar. And so this man is saying that he's our king and you're our king. Caesar is our king. And so they're saying, look, this guy is stirring up the people and claiming to be their king. He's done it in Galilee. He's done it throughout Judea. And now he's doing it here in Jerusalem. This is a direct threat to you, Pilate. And if we fast forward to verse 26, we see that Pilate sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion. But we also see in this that not only is Jesus found guilty and sentenced to death, but we also see that even though he was judged guilty, he was proclaimed innocent. He was proclaimed innocent. He was proclaimed innocent by his betrayer. In verse 4, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. This man is innocent. So he is proclaimed innocent by the one who betrayed him. And he's also pro pro proclaimed innocent by the one who found him guilty. Pilate, the one who sentenced him to death. Pilate had hundreds of experiences questioning people who were guilty of, who were found guilty of capital um, crimes that were sentenced to death because of their threat to the emperor. And Pilate found that always these people fell into one of two categories. They were indignant, defiant revolutionaries who were shaking their fists at the authorities and were willing to do whatever it took to bring the empire down. They had one of those in custody who were shaking their fists at the authorities his name was Barabbas, and he was to be executed later on that day. But there was a second group that was brought before Pilate, and they claimed to be, no, I'm misrepresented, I'm innocent. This is all a big misunderstanding, pleading and begging, sobbing before the governor, please have mercy on me, let me go, this is all a misunderstanding. But Jesus was different. Jesus didn't fit into either of those categories. Pilate asked Jesus straight out, are you king of the Jews? Jesus responds the same way he had responded to Caiaphas earlier. You've said so. We talked about it last week. Jesus was not the type of king or Messiah that he thinks that Pilate thinks he is. For his kingdom isn't of this world. But this is a nuance that isn't worth pointing out to Pilate. So Jesus just goes along with it. No resignation. No defiance, no pleading. In verse 14, it says Pilate was greatly amazed. He says, do you not hear how many things they're saying against you? But Jesus gave no answer 
Because Jesus didn't come to make a statement. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is being led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't come to lead a revolution. Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. Verse 18 says that Pilate wasn't fooled. He knew why Jesus was before him. It was out of envy that these people had brought Pilate before him. Pilate's wife had been warned in a dream about Jesus, and she sent word to Pilate saying, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. In Luke's account um, uh, of Pilate, in in Luke 23.4, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man at all. And in our passage in 27.23, Pilate says, there's no reason to put this man to death, for he has done no evil. So if we're wanting a couple of witnesses to testify to the innocence of a man, what two better witnesses could we have than one who was with him every day, day after day for the last three years, who betrays him or originally turns him in, and the judge that ultimately sentenced him to death? What two more impeccable witnesses could we have? The one at the beginning and the one at the end. But if those two declared him innocent, then why is he still sentenced to death? The purpose for pointing this out is not because, not so that we may go tisk tisk and say, isn't injustice an awful thing? It is an awful thing, but that's not why it's here. The purpose of this is to show that it was prophesied that it would happen just like this. The suffering servant, the righteous one, will make an offering for the guilt of others. This is the will of the Lord. Yes, he did not deserve to die. That's the point. But he willingly did die and suffer injustice so that he may be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the innocent, righteous one was judged guilty and condemned to death. But what do we do with that information? In this passage, Matthew presents to us these concentric circles of people who are responsible for shedding Jesus's blood. And he also shows their attempts to assuage their guilt. So we start with Judas and then it moves to the Sanhedrin and then it moves to Pilate and then it moves to the crowd and then it moves to the soldiers, the Pilate's Roman soldiers. So let's take a look at these briefly and see how they respond to the guilt 
that is due those who have placed the innocent one on the cross and condemned him to death. Judas, when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver. And he says, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. Judas realized his guilt. He has sinned. He acknowledges he has made a terrible mistake. Now, is this repentance? We see there in verse three that it says that he changed his mind. Sounds like repentance. But the normal Greek word we would see here is a word metanoeo, which means repent. But this is a different word. This is metamelomai, which means have regret or express remorse. It is very fine distinction there. But it's an important distinction for us to understand because we can truly feel sorry for our sin. We can hate the consequences of our sin. We can regret the destruction that our sin has caused. We can feel shame. We can feel deep sadness for our sin. But that doesn't necessarily equate with repentance. The Bible characterizes this distinction as godly grief and worldly grief. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Both are grief. Both have an outcome. It seems the difference is where you take your grief and where you seek your comfort. Where you seek your forgiveness. Judas knew that he had sinned against an innocent man, yet he didn't go to that innocent man. He tried to undo his sin. He didn't seek, go to Jesus to seek his forgiveness. Instead, he goes to the elders, the chief priests, and tries to undo it. Just give them money back and, and have them release Jesus. No harm, no foul. <coughs> he comes to the ones whom he thinks can provide him worldly relief. Ironically, if we're going by John's timing of the events, this day would have been the day that the lambs were sacrificed in the temple for the atonement of sin. And so he comes to the chief priest of Israel and says, I have sinned. I have sinned against an innocent man. And what are the leaders of Israel? What are the chief priest's response? What is that to us? See to it yourself. Take care of your guilt yourself. Shows the shepherds of Israel are more concerned about themselves and their own preoccupations than they are the sheep of Israel. Talk about that in a second. Jesus had warned Judas at the Last Supper that the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man had never been born. Even death will not take away his guilt and the grief of sinning against the Son of Man. His problems will have just begun in death. Well, here we are, maybe 12 hours later. And Judas now understands what Jesus meant. But he doesn't bring his grief to Jesus. Instead, he seeks comfort from the world and from man and finds it severely lacking. And he throws himself down he throws down the money in the temple and goes out and hangs himself. Worldly grief produces death. 
Brothers and sisters, every sin we commit is ultimately against God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have marred his image. And so even though we sin against one another in word and deed, we must acknowledge our sin before the Lord as King David did upon his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. In Psalm 51, 4, he says, Against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Some of you may be extremely grieved in your sin, but that grief only extends to your shame or the consequences of your sin. Some of you may feel like you're beyond hope because nothing you seem to do, nothing you try to do seems to assuage your, your guilt that you feel. Bring your sin to the Lord. Confess it. Confess your sins to one another. Seek counsel so that we may help you in your confession, so that we may encourage you and point you to Christ and that you may find repentance before the Lord and that we may encourage you and speak truth to you. You are not beyond hope. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We move from Judas out to the chief priests and the elders in verses 4 through 10. Judas comes to the Sanhedrin testifying to the innocence of Jesus. So this puts the burden on, on the rulers of Israel, right? Well, now we have a testimony that he's innocent. How will they respond? The Sanhedrin claims they have nothing to do with it. says, see to it, what is that to us? But Matthew makes it clear that they are certainly guilty in verse 6. When they have to decide what to do with the money that Judas has returned. And they say, well, we can't put this money back in the treasury. I mean, this is blood money. But they paid it to Judas out of the treasury. So they are just as culpable as he is. They deal with their guilt in two ways. One of which is ignoring their guilt and seeking to continue to adhere to the law in minor things. As if that will somehow cause God to look in the other direction and forget about this. That will buy off God's inactivity by placating him in, a, in, a, in another work. So the other thing they do is they seek to do something good with the money. So they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. So if a non-Jew comes to Jerusalem and they die while they're there, well, you can't bury them with Jews. So they have to have another place to be buried. So they buy this place. Ironically, they try to cover up their unclean act by buying a burial place, another an, an unclean place. So they pile one act of death upon another. But they have fooled no one, for Matthew tells us that this field from now on becomes known as the field of blood. Nor have they fooled God. <clears throat> Matthew tells us this whole act is fulfilling the prophecy of Scripture. And then in verses 9 and 10, we have this difficult these difficult verses, because if you look at your Bible, you see that Jesus, that Matthew refers to um, <clears throat> the prophecy of Jeremiah. Well, if you look at the verse quoted, you see that it comes from Zechariah chapter 11. 
And so what's going on here? Well, <clears throat> this is a combined scripture quotation where you take the writer alludes to the more well-known prophet, but quotes the lesser known prophet. So <clears throat> we see both a Jeremiah reference here and a Zechariah reference, and we'll get to the Jeremiah reference in a second. But this Zechariah scripture <clears throat> deals with, um, um, uh, if you looked at Zechariah 11, that is titled, the flock is, Israel's flock is doomed to slaughter. And so it tells the story of the Lord finding fault with Israel's shepherds, <clears throat> calling them worthless. And so he becomes shepherd over them. But in Zechariah 11, we see that the flock of Israel detests the new shepherd, detests God the shepherd over them. And so the Lord says, fine, I will no longer be your shepherd. But if it seems good to you, pay the wages to me that I'm owed for being your shepherd. And so they pull out this paltry sum of 30 pieces of silver showing their disregard for the Lord. And the Lord is offended and says, just throw it to the potter. Who cares? So this draws attention to the fact that like the rejected shepherd of Israel in Zechariah 11, Jesus was despised and undervalued by and among the sons of Israel. <clears throat> but like I said, we'll get to this Jeremiah reference that we'll look at in a second. But what we, have, what we see here is that any attempt by the rulers of Israel to rid themselves of the guilt of crucifying the Lord of glory is seen right through by, Lord, by God and by man. <clears throat> we must never assume that we can cover up our disobedience in one area by obedience in another. As Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We move from the rulers of Israel out to Pontius Pilate. We've talked quite a bit already about Pontius Pilate. Now Pilate realized that Jesus was innocent and righteous. But it's instructive how Pilate deals with this notion of guilt. He provides several opportunities for the people of Israel to let Jesus go. He's talked to the man himself. He's received counsel from his wife to let him go. <clears throat> but out of fear of the crowd and in protection of his job, he carries out the will of the people. Look at verse 24. When he saw that a riot was beginning, he was gaining nothing. So in an attempt to keep the peace, he went along with the crowd. But he took great pains to have a ceremony, a pitcher and a basin brought to him so they could have this ceremonious act before the crowd washing his hands of the whole thing saying I am innocent of all of this this is on you this isn't on me see to it yourselves which is ironic so now Pilate is proclaiming his innocence when he's seen all these people come before him pleading for their innocence now Pilate is the one saying I'm innocent it reminds me of <clears throat> Andy Dufresne and the Shawshank Redemption when he gets to prison and he's there for one of his first days in prison and he's, at, he's eating a meal and they ask him what he did. And he says, I didn't do anything. 
I'm innocent in red sarcastically says you'll fit right in here because none of us are in here are guilty. We're all innocent. I wonder how many people will stand before the Lord on judgment day and claim their innocence. The Bible tells us that we are all guilty before the Lord. No one is innocent except the one in our passage that is being condemned to death is guilty on our behalf. History has quite a different take on Pilate's innocence, doesn't it? We just read the apostle, recited the Apostles' Creed, which states that Jesus was crucified and suffered under Pontius Pilate. We can claim our innocence all we want, but it will be borne out that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore we are without excuse. The scene moves there out to another circle and it's the crowd, the people of Israel. Supposedly it had been a tradition for the Roman governor at the feast to release to Israel one of theirs that was in prison. <clears throat> so Pilate thought for sure this would be his opportunity to get rid of, get out of this predicament he's in because they'd want Jesus to be released. He severely misread the room. He had them choose between Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. He says that twice. They wanted Barabbas. Barabbas was a nationalistic revolutionary. He was despised by Rome, but he was somewhat of a hero to Israel. This guy fights. This guy makes things happen. This guy, if given the chance, can provide for Israel what it really wants to be out from under the boot of Caesar. At one time, they had hoped that Jesus would be such a man, but he'd gone and gotten himself condemned and doesn't act in a way that looks like he's going to save Israel. He didn't provide the deliverance they had in mind. In spite of Pilate's sales job to the crowd, he's called the Messiah. He's done nothing wrong. I find no fault in this man. The crowd is unfazed. Then he does the public washing of his hands and says, see to, it this, see to this yourselves. And they respond, that's fine. Let his blood be on us and on our children. We're good with it. We'll take the responsibility. We'll take the blame. Mentioned a bit earlier about the reference to Jeremiah. Turn with me over to Jeremiah 19. It's on page 647 in the Bibles provided. Jeremiah 19, we can see how it would be alluded to in this passage that uh, Matthew talked about earlier. For it talks about a potter and it talks about um, buying a field. It talks about the need to buy a burial place because the judgment that is coming on Israel will be so severe that you won't have any place to bury people anymore. So in 19.3 it says, You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it, offerings in it to other gods whom they neither 
neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence. And have built high places of Baal and burned their sons in the fire as burning offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no, long, no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the, hill, uh, of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem, and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field, and I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. And shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts. Shall will, uh, so will I break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. Thus will I do to this place, declares the Lord, and to its inhabitants, making this city like Topheth. So listen to that prophecy. And now think of Pilate pleading with the people of the innocent Jesus before him. And, Judea, and the people of Jerusalem and Judea say, yeah, we're fine with it. Let his blood be on us and on our children. The people don't even care. They've got, they don't even consider their guilt. Live for now. We've got bigger problems. We've got bigger fish to fry. So Pilate, realizing he's made no headway with the crowd, finally relented and released for the crowd Barabbas and scourged Jesus and delivered him to be crucified. You may wonder why if Pilate found no fault in him and attempted to wash his hands of guilt, why would he still punish? Why would he still scourge Jesus? It seems to be a completely senseless act. But it's even one that Jesus did not find surprising. For this would fulfill what Jesus told his disciples would happen in Matthew 20, 19. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Finally, we see the Roman soldiers. Jesus delivered to them, having his clothes torn to shreds by the flogging that he's just received with whips and shards of bone and pottery tied to the ends that completely turn his back to a bloody piece of meat with one lash. But those lashes didn't stop there. For It only stopped enough, um, <clears throat> limited only by the strength and by the endurance of the one who was meeting out this punishment on his back. The whole notion of a king being before them, before these Roman soldiers, is laughable. The thought that they would have any responsibility or obligation to him was a foreign concept. They're obligated to Caesar, 
What bearing would this dying man have on them? So they mock him. They put a pretend robe on his head, on his back. They twist together a crown of thorny vines for his head and put a reed in his hand as a scepter. Kneeling before him, they mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. Again, this isn't a formal action. This is an unsupervised, barbaric Roman soldiers blowing off steam action at the expense of this pitiful one before them. Another completely senseless act, except this was foretold in Scripture as well. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. How did he endure it? The next verse tells us, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. <clears throat> so where are we in all this? <clears throat> you may say, well, that seems like a stupid question to ask. This happened 1988 years ago. Why would you ask what role I had in it? In Acts 2, after Jesus is resurrected and ascended into heaven, Peter is giving his sermon at Pentecost, and he says in Acts 2, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now I'm sure there were people in the crowd that they did that were present saying, yelling, crucify him. But there were definitely those there that were not. I wonder what they thought when they heard those words. Were they like, hey, wait a second, don't lump me in with those faithless people. Those are wicked folks. I didn't have anything to do with that. But if we look at 25, at verse 25 in our passage, the people of Israel say, His blood be on us and on our children. Yeah, we'll take blame for it and put blame our kids too. That guilt extends to us. For we have all rebelled against God. We are all due a penalty, for we have all rejected our Creator and our God. As we sang to earlier, died He for me who caused His pain. For me who Him to death pursued. I pursued His death. As we read in Jeremiah 19, there was a wrathful, certain, decisive, total judgment coming on the people of Israel. And the Lord Jesus left heaven and stepped in between righteous, wrathful God and pitiful, without excuse, rebellious man and took that total judgment on himself in their place. The guilt for the death of Christ extends as far as the curse is found. 
but the benefits and blessings of that death extend to every corner of the world to redeem his people from that curse. You may wonder why I haven't said anything about Barabbas. His response is the one we know least about. Barabbas have said, hey, I knew nothing about Jesus. I I was just minding my own business. I wasn't saying anything about Jesus. I have zero opinion of the man. Don't blame me for his death. But Barabbas is the picture of all of us. Barabbas was condemned guilty. Barabbas had a death sentence. In all likelihood, the cross in the middle was his. It was built for him. But unbeknownst to him, a righteous, innocent king had set his face like flint to the scorn and humiliation of the cross in his place. Barabbas's life was ransomed by the one who was called Christ. Like Barabbas, we were imprisoned in spirit, fast bound in sin in nature's night. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. We all had a hand in crucifying the Lord of glory. As we'll sing in a minute. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So what is our response this Easter Sunday, this three days later from what we read about today when he is raised from the dead? Will we feel sorry for our sins and lament what it's taken from us? Thinking that in some way the punishment we inflict on ourselves will cause God to say, that's okay, you've had enough misery, go on. Or will we try to cover up our sin with acts of piety, trusting in our own righteousness that maybe we can dazzle God with our good works and distract him from our guilt? Or will we just flat out state our innocence? And look at others, comforting ourselves that we're better off than they are and more sensitive than they are. And after all, we're just going along with the will of the people. I'm just one voice. What can I do to change anything? Or will we divert our eyes away from the eternal things and instead concern ourselves with political power and cultural Christianity? And think somehow that we will make a name for ourselves in what we build here by sheer will and determination. And that somehow God will be pleased. Or will we take what we've heard today and read and just throw it away? It's just beyond reason that we could ever be responsible to a God we cannot see or hear. We should take our cues from Three, three of our very imperfect examples that we see in this text who spoke far better than we knew. We should acknowledge that our sin placed Christ upon that cross and realize that we can do nothing to save ourselves and we have no hope at all apart from the saving work of Christ. Acknowledging that my, when he was on that cross, he was suffering the wrath that my sin deserves. And he was forsaken for me. 
and confess that the only way we may be restored is by Christ's perfect sacrifice and plead to the Father, may his blood be on us and may his blood be on our children as we've just prayed. May we take a cue from Barabbas as we sang earlier. Christ has loosed our chains. May we rise and leave behind the cell. Leave behind the works of death and bondage to sin. And may we follow Christ. And may we be encouraged that one day our faith will become sight. And we will kneel before him with unsurpassed joy, unbounded joy, and proclaim, Hail, you are our King. Let us praise our righteous, gracious, merciful, faithful God. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would still us before you. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to acknowledge all of our sin. And acknowledge that it was placed upon you. There is nothing left to do. For it is finished. It has been punished in your son, Jesus Christ. Who was raised for our justification. And so, Father, forgive us for ways that we seek to assuage our guilt with acts of piety or or ignorance, willful ignorance. Father, we pray that we would encourage one another with the hope that we find in the empty tomb. That the penalty has been paid and there is no more guilt for us. Oh, Lord, cleanse us from our guilty consciences and enable us to delight in you, our righteous Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.